Check, check, check. I'm Jonathan. I'm Jeremy. And we are the Evangelicals. So today, Jeremy and I are going to have a conversation about theology. and Shocker. (laughs) But explicitly about theology. All right. Usually, we try to impose our theological views on you in subtle or not so unsubtle ways. But today, we're talking about the development of theology as a discipline in the West particularly in the United States, because the thing is, we've got some crazy theology, Jeremy. Are, are you tr- are you saying that we are trying to brainwash people in our podcast? I'm saying we, while we may have in the past, this episode, not at all. We're oh, just being, you know, cards on the table. Cards on the table. This is, <laughs> this is what it is. Yeah, I mean, I think that, yeah, this, is, this will be fun. I'm interested to see. We usually have a pretty long pre-conversation, and we haven't today. So you're you're getting all this from the hip pocket. It'll be fun. Yeah, it's fresh. It's fresh. So, I as wanna, the kids say, it's fresh. <laughs> I want to say a little bit about theology in the 20th century, and then theology in the 21st century. And this may be this little overview that I'm going to give. Some of you may say, you know, I yeah, I know all of this. And some of you may be, oh, I I don't know that I did know much of this but coming out of the 19th century so the 1800s there was a lot going on in the world but also in academics so in academics in germany there was this movement in the 19th century for critical historical critical scholarship of the bible there's this development of the idea that maybe moses did not single-handedly write the entire law as was kind of the the legend and still people some people believe that but it seems like there were actually four different voices throughout the law that have different theological priorities different political priorities and that it seems like maybe someone in the seventh century bc around the time of the exile actually compiled the different voices into what we have in the law well and so when that started happening it's called jepd theory or whatever yep yeah the in case you want to look it up. Yeah. The Wellhausen, I feel like there's another name associated. But Julius Wellhausen is one of the names J E J E D M P uh the four source the four source hypothesis. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, what yeah. it is. The four source hypothesis. So there starts to be kind of a critical critical scholarship in the in the 19th century and going into the 20th century a couple of things happened in theology one of them is that people started wanting to defend the bible just voraciously maybe that's not a good word uh they they wanted to very strongly defend the authenticity of the bible and so you have this rise of fundamentalism that happens where people are wanting to say no 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 everything in the bible is exactly true the bible is a historical document the bible is a scientific document the the bible is a theologically authoritative document i mean it's all of these things in one and this is kind of the rise of fundamentalism against the german academy and so fundamentalism affects theology in the 20th century you also have you also have in the 20th century things like the holiness movement happening where people are starting to read the bible through different lenses so you have liberation theology where people say you know the first thing that jesus says in the synagogue is i've come to oppress i've come not oppress i've come to liberate <laughs> that's gonna be one of those jeremy 20 years from now somebody is going to say Jonathan said that Jesus came to oppress. Listen to this clip, clip, and they're going to play that four seconds, and everybody in the audience is going to be stunned. You're getting canceled in 20 years. And, yeah, and they're going to say, well, so much for this guy. We thought he was about liberation, but all along, he's been about oppression. So Jesus, so liberation theology happens in the 20th century where people are reading Jesus kind of critically through the movements of what's going on the post-slavery era the uh the rise of of women's rights and voting rights and and there's the oppression the economic oppression of people in, in the central and south america is and they're saying wait a second jesus the first thing that he reads from isaiah is i've come to proclaim freedom for the captive 
I've come to liberate the oppressed, you know, and this is fulfilled in your hearing. So liberation movements are happening. Feminist movements are happening in the 20th century. Fundamentalist movements are happening in the 20th century, you know, and then later in the 20th century, the postmodernist movement happens where as all of these different voices in the 20th century are fighting together about what theology is, what religion is, what worldview is. In the 80s and 90s, there's a group of deconstructionists that rise up and they say, you know what? There's actually not a meta-narrative, an overall narrative that makes everything work together. And we get postmodernism where we go from being critical of scripture and you know, kind of mining it academically to many places, in many ways, disregarding it. And you have in the early 2000s, people who are essentially kind of uh, Unitarian Universalists in the sense that kind of the, the ethic becomes, why, why do we need to even center around Christian scriptures? Why don't we just move to a place of uh, just freedom, liberty, uh, in belief and practice and all these types of things. Well, then what we've experienced in our own lifetime in the last 10 or 20 years is a polarity of the radical resurgence of conservative fundamentalism to kind of bring back everything that was understood to be lost in post-modernity. And then you have people who lived through post-modernity and are not really convinced that conservative fundamentalism is the answer to their problems. And so some of them are turning to the just to the far left or disregarding religion altogether or just asking themselves the question like why do we even why do we even do this religious thing this is just all led us to a very dark scary place that i don't really want to be a part of it i'm just going to go live my life and then you have people in the middle like us you know people trying to people seeing the perspectives of people all around you know and um trying to figure out maybe more of a middle way hmm. Do you have any thoughts on where we are in theology right now? Just um, kind of the narrative of where we are. I want to I want to talk about the problem of academic theology, and I want to talk about the problem of no theology. I, I I think it's it's easy to talk about both the far left and the far right, the the polarities in thought, and I don't mean that just politically. It's just kind of what our imagination has is left and right. Uh, yeah, I think that um, a really important thing to understand maybe or um to grapple with is theology always we don't i don't think we like this or we, we would never claim this but a lot of times the way we think about theology arises from the culture and what's going on in culture and is a reaction to to what is taking place and and a lot of times what we believe or think Sometimes, um, you know, and there's been a lot of study that every 500 years, there's a major technological invention that literally changes the dynamic of theology. And, and the two are, there's a correlation between the two. Because we would say, oh, we don't listen to culture and we don't um, abide by culture's rules. And yet, if you look at what's happening and taking place in in the grander scheme of, of society, theology is reacting to or speaking to all of the things that are happening in, in the greater culture. And, and so I think that that's, that's neither good nor bad, but in, until we can admit that and, and, and have good conversation around that, I think it's really hard to have good, solid conversation about theology because I think that if you don't understand where things like systematic theology, what it rose out of, if you don't understand things about liberation theology, you know that, that things that were happening in the greater culture, it's hard to understand why these things were even important at the times that they were important. And even just even a lot of like rapture theology, a lot of end times theology came out of something that was taking place in culture and it was a response to things that were happening around them. Um, and, and so these beliefs were were created or started to believed to believe. And we just think that that's how Christians have believed since, you know, God created in the beginning. And it's just not true. And a lot of the things we hold to be dear 
are really infant in their understanding when you think about the the history of the world. Um, but once again, arose out of cultural things that were happening and responses to those things. Yeah, I, I think you make a, a lot of really good points there. Um, when I when I hear what you were just saying and I kind of like uh, just process um, maybe the inf- the infancy of, of thoughts or the, the newness of some ideas, um, I think that that one of them is this idea of, of eschatology that we don't that we don't talk about often the the time frame and maybe we even referenced this earlier in a podcast, but this idea of people being obsessed with the rapture, and um, the world burning and this type of thing, it really that really was a popular idea that was being made popular uh, in the in the early twentieth century, post Civil War. A lot of it was in reaction to what happened to the Civil War, and and was reading a book and and understanding that it really came from um, a lot from Southerners who, when the war, when they lost the war. Sorry, South, you did lose. I know you still think that. You're from the South. I know. <laughs> That's why I can speak to this. Um, even that they thought from that point forward, because they didn't win and weren't going to be able to still have slaves, that the world was just going to get worse and worse and worse. Yeah. Rather than God redeeming creation. Right. Things were going like, we lost this. It's all downhill from here. And so what arose out of that was we're going to escape, you know, and, yes. and, and it, it had more to do with, once again, what was happening around them post-Civil War than it did with actual biblical theology. That's right. I, I think that you you make a really good point when you say that when we look at theological developments, they're very much in conversation with things that are going on in the world. And the point of the 500 years the technological innovation, that's also a very interesting point. If you look at 500 years ago, the Reformation doesn't happen without Gutenberg's printing press. Absolutely. I mean, the, the two, the two it's, it's hand in glove. Right. You, you can't have one without the other. And I don't know that, I don't know that people real, realize the significance of that. It's not like there, has never, there had never been a monk previously in the church that wanted to stand up to power or say, you know what, I don't think this is right. You know, but there was definitely not a monk who was uh, able to translate the Bible into the language of the commoner and circulate it like Martin Luther was able to. Right. I mean, because there was no such thing as the printing press, right? Um, and I think we're, whether we want to admit it or not, the internet Jimmy, has changed things dramatically. And so we are in this kind of upheaval. We do not we do not know how to be theologians with the internet. Absolutely. And if we've ever if we need any evidence of that, look at what in the world has been going on on the internet since COVID nineteen. Sure. We and we ought to all, as humble theologians, step back and just admit we're a not doing it right. And B, we probably in our lifetime aren't going to get it completely right. And we need to stop claiming that we are because if history should teach us anything, it's that when there is technological innovation, it actually takes several generations for people to refine it and understand what it's really doing to humanity. And and we are all, oh man, we, we are in the infant stages of a massive innovation that has connected the world like it's never been connected before. And just just to your point, you know, there there are people that kick against the idea that the church is changing because it, you don't you know change is hard to kind of embrace. The church has changed, period. And I think that the question that we have to ask in history that is very direct, very very directly connected to the conversation of how theology changes is: Has God changed? Hmm in his personality and his desire yeah if is there a living god that changes with the cultural innovate the the technological innovations or is there something timeless to this 
God that claims to desire a covenant with peoples. Mm. You know, because uh, <clears throat> I tend I tend to find people on one end of the spectrum. Either they are so convinced that God is so unchanged that we need to preserve everything that's ever been, or we're people are really obsessed with the idea that the world is changing and we need to change with it. <laughs> right, right, right. And they're not really concerned with, well, what does the what does this mean for the constancy of the character of God? For example, for example, and I, I think that I've already expressed this on the podcast, I am not I, I am having a I have a difficult time when I get in conversations with with Christians who are fine with giving up the gathering together because of the innovation of the internet that say we don't need we don't need in person fellowship anymore mm -hmm. because we have the internet mm -hmm. I just for me I'm fine with I'm thankful for the innovation of the internet I'm glad for the innovation of the internet but for me and I don't just say for me I believe in the incarn the fullness of the incarnation that the message of the incarnation of god becoming human is that theology is enfleshed and i think that me going and sitting with a person with dementia in a in a nursing home it's different than visiting with them on zoom oh absolutely like there is there's and eating together is still the prime the primal way that humans connect yeah even though some people want to reject it or think that we now think that eating together is a waste of time and it's possibly um, a dangerous way of spreading disease that we don't know is on the food. I'm serious. Yeah. This is the world we live in now. I think these <clears throat> theology has changed and we don't recognize we are living in we are so we are living in such a significant historical moment. We are not realizing how it's changing our theology. And how our culture is shaping what we believe about God more than we're letting the character of God or the spirit of God shape what we're thinking about God. So I think this, once again, historically plays out in so many ways that is, is really important is, is once again, I think it kind of goes back to this understanding of where is the authority? Um, where, where's authority in my life? So you look at pre-reformation like church was authority it was important to get together because that's where we learned about god and the church is the one that dispensed the information or the community and so it was important for us to get together once luther did his thing you know printing press there was still authority because not everybody could write a book and so there was this understanding that people who had been trained it wasn't necessarily with the church but it was with people who had the ability to write and to publish. And so there was still this understanding that it was, this was the authority. And it was still important to get together because maybe not everybody could read Bart or read all of these people, you know, these German theologians or whatever, or Luther, they didn't have access maybe to all of those books. So they're still important to get together. Well, now with the internet, everybody's the expert. <laughs> I don't need to come to hear you speak about scripture because I've got my opinion and in 140 characters or less or whatever it is on Twitter, 180, yeah. I'm now the expert. And so I don't need to have that, that sense of coming together to hear, to grow because I can, and like I said, just pulling up an app, I get access to the Timothy Kellers, whether if you think he's a, you know, or whoever your person is, um, and so there is there's there's not this urgency or this sense of um, understanding that it's a big deal to come together. I think it also plays out in what was happening in culture that that all of these systematic theologies were being written and understanding that science was coming up with all of these formulas, all of these ways to figure out, to get things down to the, the lowest common denominator, the, we can know this stuff. And so because of the enlightenment, the scientific method, all of these things, science was making great progress, but explaining things down to the, the, as, as, as easy as we can explain it. And I think the response to that was we have to write these what we call systematic theologies. John Wesley never wrote a systematic theology. Right. You know, and, and all of these people, but it was a response to 
well, we need to explain the Christian under, you know, what we believe about God, what we believe about Jesus, what we believe about the Holy Spirit. I mean, just everything we need to, in response to what was happening in culture, make that happen. Well, when we're, where we're living now is once again, everybody's an expert. I don't need these 29 volumes of Bart or whatever, I don't know, whatever yeah. the dogmatics are and, and, and Calvin because I can just find that stuff with a click of a button and, and give my own opinion, my own understanding. And so I think what we're seeing through all of this is with systematic theology, which we were talking a little beforehand, it's just kind of a, an oxymoron. I mean, it's just, it doesn't even make sense. Yeah, just the idea of systematic, systematizing God. Yeah. I mean, if you read the Bible, the whole point of like, the thing about the Bible is on every page, you find kind of a different iteration, a different surprise, a different gem. I think the danger would be is to look at the the the, the era of like historical critical think, thinking about the Bible and just say it's all bad. And the, the, the error would be to look at all of these systematic, like there's some great stuff in there that can be very helpful to us. But we either buy it hook, line, and sinker, or we just throw it all away without understanding why these things were important, where they came from, the the heart that they came from. I think people were really trying to, to be and to help people in those eras, in those moments. But yeah, if you can and can explain God, what kind of a God is, yeah. is that, you know? Well, one of the, so going, let's, so going back to where you're, you're at, so the late enlightenment, you know, 19th and then early 20th century as fundamentalism is rising arising in response to the scientific revolution of discovery darwinism all these types of things there was particularly in germany this desire to write systematic theology you know and it's not like no christians in history had ever written systematically you, you get thomas aquinas his massive summa theologica which what he's trying to do is he's trying to explain to everybody hey greek philosophy is is in conversation with christianity and i'll show i'll kind of show you how you know and he's very influenced by plotinus uh the the um the post like platonists i think they're called neoplatonists and you know john calvin in his historical moment, he writes, uh, is it Christian uh, Institutes? The Institutes? The Institutes, yeah, 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 yeah. And he's trying to help people in a Protestant world live outside of the reign of the Pope and to create a society. And so he's writing his Institutes, and it's a it's a system. You know, so you got Aquinas, you get Calvin, you get these, these different individuals that are writing somewhat systematically for their historical moment well then you get what bart what bart and some of these other folks are doing in the 20th century is they're trying to give some really intellectually savvy description of god and philosophy and it's like an academic christian apologetic yeah but but the thing is at the end of the day Christianity is not about academics. If it was, Jesus would have writ some, written something down, but he didn't. Christianity is about a life of holy pursuit of God, and it's a it's about concern for the poor. Hmm. You know, it's Christianity is is actually something very simple that we've made very very complex. But what's amazing to me in the twenty first century with the innovation of the internet and everything is that we've turned we've completely turned christianity into a a system of beliefs that i either i believe it or i don't believe it and i find internet preachers that i agree with but we legitimately think that we can be christians without interacting with the poor without emulating the the actions of jesus and i feel like my problem with theology is that we we taught people in the 20th century that the way to know that you're a Christian the most is to understand deep intellectual theology. And if you can understand deep intellectual theology, 
then you're a Christian. I mean, this is this is John Piper's uh, watchword and song is you got to understand the Bible exactly. And if you understand it exactly and precisely, then you're going to be a great Christian, you know. But the fact of the matter is you can actually be a Christian and be illiterate. Yeah. Did you know that? I mean, you could actually you can actually be a Christian and have a learning disability. You know? <laughs> I read something the other day um in the Bible. Yeah, I was reading the Bible the other day. It's and, a good thing to read. <laughs> so I had never never caught my attention. But it's it's been I don't know, just in my I feel like it's been um God's been showing me this maybe through different things, through different sermons. But then I was reading Revelation chapter 21. And, and we talk a lot about the the book of life, right? The Lamb's book of life. And I was reading it and it's something that caught my attention was it said the people's names are written in the Lamb's book of life because of what they have done. Not because of what they believed. Hey, Jeremy, does it say because of what Jesus has done or does it say because of what they have done? What they have done. Which is very <laughs> different than our pop. And it says it twice. I, I'm going to pull it up. Is that all right? I'm going to pull it up yeah, because yeah, I think yeah, it's yeah, important yeah. to make sure I'm not just pulling the wool over your eyes. No, but and it I'm, just yeah. caught my attention because we boiled it down to if you say this prayer, you your believe, name is written. And, and Jeremy, 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 furthermore, the, the point that I was kind of making and asking the uh, the teasing question yeah. is that we have we have taught people it's not about what you do. It's about what mm-hmm. Christ has done for you. Uh, uh, oh, what was oh, what's the famous the famous evangelist's line? You know, other religions say do uh, Jesus says done. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so this is what's wrong with this is what's wrong with Hinduism, Islam, Buddhism. All these all these religions teach that you've got to do something, and Christianity says it's all been done for you. But it's like, wait, 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 hold on just a second. I don't know that Jesus ever actually said it's all been done for you. He never says that. Well, they're probably you know, taking what he said on the cross. Uh it is finished. Right, but I don't think that that's what you yeah, know, I mean, but they like, are what, yeah. extrapolating oh, on Oh, it's terrible. Um, it's terrible extrapolation for lack of a better word. It's that's not what uh, <laughs> Yeah. I I I'll have to look this up. I don't know, but it, it does make reference to their name was written based on what they'd done, which brings me, you know, even I, we've probably talked about it before, but in the Good Samaritan, it was about what go and do likewise. It's Matthew 25, which we reference all the time. Um, when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. Those are the people, the sheep that are welcomed into the kingdom. And, and so I think that again and again, because of what was happening in culture, we made it about this um, intellectual ascent rather than an understanding of Am I living the way that God is asking me to live? Am I being who he's called me to be? Am I truly um, not just believing the right things? Because listen, I mean, even the demons believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Like that, that they, they never questioned. They knew exactly who he was. Um, I think their big question is, what is he going to do with us? What, what does that mean for us? And, and how how are we going to what, what what does it mean for our now like hey can we go to those pigs or can we uh, what is this what is this going to look like for us and so I think that that because of what was happening in the culture at the time we thought if we can just get everybody to believe the right thing that's what's going to change the culture and I do believe it probably came from a heart of we want the culture to be different. We want we want to change the culture. And because the culture was about intellectualism and enlightenment and and all of these new understandings and new thoughts and new beliefs, we thought, well, that's what we need to counteract. And if we can just get people to fundamentally believe about this, about the Bible, about God, about Jesus, that's what will change the world. And And so I don't know that it came from a place of of ill will or evil, but we have to understand that it was a response potentially to what was happening in the culture. And we, there's some good things, like I said, that came from that good conversations, good understandings, but it's not 
where our salvation lies. And we, we, we have to understand that once again, God is calling us to, to be a certain way and to live a certain way. Well, so, I mean, the passage, the passage in, in Revelation 21, it says, it's, it talks about, it talks about sin, the way that you're living. So early in Revelation 21, anyone who's a coward, who doesn't trust me, who doesn't disgusting things, who is a murderer. Um, hold on just a second. I don't, I'm, I'm using a, a translation of the Bible that's not, um, Mm. Faithless, polluted, the murderers, the fornicators, the sorcerers. Uh, this is NRSV. Liars. Their place will be in that lake that burns with fire. So that so there's this idea of how you live your life is um, how you live your life will determine what your eternal destiny is. And then in verse 27, um, it, when it talks about uh, the nations walking by its light, the temple in the city, um, nothing in clean nothing unclean will enter it nor anyone who practices abominations or falsehood but only those who are written in the lamb's book of life so it's the practice the way that you know whether or not your name is written here is by the practices i mean that's that's just what it says and there's this there is this idea in theology in kind of systematic theology particularly in america that um is that is shaped by that is shaped by reformation or enlightenment ideals that is shaped by that is reformed in some senses that has boiled the world down to the fact that god so okay here's here's one of the problems with the development of theology particularly in a reformation era i don't know if any of you have ever seen the movie the kingdom of god that is a that's a movie that actually is a is about an earlier time period it's about the crusades but they would always say in the in that movie if the lord wills it because there was this idea in christianity that god's will always prevailed that everything that happened in the world was god's will and so there's this there's this uh brand of theology coming out of the reformation that is saying you know everything that happens is god's will and so all of a sudden we see this passage that says that names are written in a book before the creation of the world and it's like oh see see this is an example of god predetermining the way that everything's going to be from the very beginning of the foundation of the world well then we develop a theology post-reformation that is very rigid that is very fixed um if you listen to john piper talk he would say that there's not a dust particle in the sky in the atmosphere that is not perfectly aligned to what god would will which is just a problematic way of thinking it, it gives absolutely no leniency to human freedom or anything like this but but our theology has so affected the way that we read the scriptures so affected the way that that we understand salvation and we need to understand that our theology is not shaped primarily from a full council of scripture but it is shaped by cultural movements by technological advances i found it revelation 20 listen to this this is great so this is before okay so what i was reading was just a, a chapter later so you're back another chapter right? another book was open which is the book of life the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and haze gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. <laughs> well, the, and the, 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 the thing that's amazing about this testimony and also what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25 is that there is no test of did you, did you convert, did you pray the right thing? But these are passages that we don't like to talk about in the church because they go against the intellectualism that we spent a hundred years developing in the 20th century in theology. But part of the reason of the post, part of the reason for postmodernism and the deconstruction and rejection of religion is because there were people that grew up in rigid religious homes where they saw parents with hard hearts saying, I'm religious. I believe that Jesus is Lord, but it didn't affect their lives at all. And so these children grew up and they said, forget it. Yeah. This meta narrative is not working out for everybody. I mean, I think one of the great, one of the first deconstructionists, Frederick Nietzsche, left the church because he heard the pastor talk again and again and again, but then he didn't see how it affected his everyday life. I, I, I think there was a story like that maybe, um, or maybe it was Derrida or something like that, that, that they saw the discrepancy between what was said about a loving God and how God is creating us to to have that fruit grow in us and then they that person was evil and hate, hateful and 
and didn't care for so, the people that needed to care. You know, they, there was this what uh, Weinkoop in our theological tradition calls the credibility gap. And, and there, there's this gap between what we say and how we live. And um, and so I think that that trying to to get back to an understanding once again of how does who Jesus is affect every aspect of my life and not just what happens on a Sunday morning when uh, we're all together in a, in a space. I think that's really important, but that time is important because of what it calls us to the rest of the week and not just because we're choosing to get together for an hour or 45 minutes or an hour and a half or whatever your, your gathering time is. So um, when I was at the University of Chicago, I took a class where we read Nietzsche and Kierkegaard who are similar time period existential philosophers. And you're right about Nietzsche. Nietzsche, he he did not, he had no appreciation for religion because he, um, in a sim- similar sense, I think it was Marx who said, did Marx say that that religion is the opiate of the masses? Um, uh, I'm not sure. But he, in a similar sense, kind of in that the, the ideas that are growing around these times is that religion has no function because economically it's not bringing it's not lifting up the poor it's just it's it's used by powerful people to manipulate those under them and unfortunately that was the case in colonization through the industrial revolution that just was the case the powerful people in the west were christian and they sanctified whatever actions they did with their theology which was junk theology and we should admit it you know? I, and I think we have to be real honest about even today that sometimes people are getting together to keep the bottom line going. Oh, totally. You know, and so we Completely. have to be honest about that. And I think that's what a lot of people, they see right through it and and they're rejecting that. Sorry. Completely. Well, so what I would say is Nietzsche was critical of the church and saw that it had no hope. Kierkegaard, on the other hand, Kierkegaard was critical of the church, but he believed in who Jesus was. He believed that there was truth mm. in Jesus's words. He believed that it was possible for people to turn from their sin, that it would take great effort and it would have to look revolutionary. It would have to look fundamentally different than what was happening. But, uh, and Brian Zond, who is a pastor in Kansas city, somewhat of a contemporary theologian. I thinker, thought it was Minneapolis. Um, he, he just he just recently um spoke at the um theology conference that i was at in kansas city yeah yeah, the preacher um, conference. Yep, yeah, yep, yeah yep right down the road from his church and he said to he said to um those of us that were were there he talked a little bit about the deconstructionist going on kind of in that era something that he tweeted recently is he he also lifted up this idea that nietzsche wasn't wrong but the problem for Nietzsche is he didn't see lived out in front of him a faith that offered any hope. Yeah. The people in front of Nietzsche that were living it out, they they were frauds. Mm. They didn't have the real seed of, of, of Christ in them. They just had the empty shell of intellectual or powerful Christianity. And the reason that Kierkegaard's philosophy was different than Nietzsche's and that it had so much import was that uh Kierkegaard believed it was possible, you know, and he had seen, he had a, he had a, he was, he had family members that were, that were pious, religious, faithful people. And though the people in power, he was suspicious of them. He still, he had a firm faith in who Jesus was. And the thing is, Jeremy, in our own, we live in a similar time in the sense that it would not be difficult for you to go interview people on the street and ask them the question, hey, are you suspect of organized religion? Probably every other, at least one in three people would say, absolutely. Yeah. And you would say, why are you suspect of, of organized religion? They would say, have you not read the news? Have you not read the sexual scandals? Do you not know about the money issues? I mean, this is, you know, do you have, has we not talked about, you know, uh, the, all of the books that are being written right now about the evangelical religious right in America and all of it's wanting to do is just power grab. Yeah. I mean, whether or not you agree that there are issues, people in our world do not believe in the necessity of organized religion 
because they have seen all of the evils that have come from it. And our theology has become so disconnected from real world issues. We don't see it. We're blind to it. We need to uh, recover that great parable that uh, Nietzsche wrote, uh, the parable of the madman. And uh, it's, I think it's in his book, it's called a gay science or something, but the madman is going through the screw street screaming, God is dead, God is dead waving this lantern and um god is dead i mean it's it's way more in depth but he ends up at the church uh, the local church which in that time churches you know what a town had a church everybody went to god is dead god is dead and he ends up at the church and says and you have killed him and this is just a sepulcher of tomb of something that once used to be and um it's hard to hear <laughs> but we could we could uh, potentially hear it humbly and understand that, that maybe we're tombs of, uh, of something that once was, which I think um, maybe shift in the conversation a little bit. I think this is why I think John Wesley was way ahead of his time because instead of writing these, I mean, he wrote a lot, don't get me wrong, but it wasn't this systematic. I mean, he's, if you read his stuff, you will walk away sometimes more confused about what he actually believed yeah. than anything else. But I think he realized his energy was better spent in trying to get people together in accountability groups and trying to get people yeah. to sit down at a table together and to hold each other, ask each other tough questions and knew that true spiritual transformation wasn't going to come from him having all the answers, but was trying to get people in a discipleship process of sitting down, eating together, asking each other questions and living life together. And then in turn, those groups helping the poor and being with the poor and trying to bring about social change and trying to be, but doing it with an understanding of getting around the table. And so it seems like he was so involved in that and once again, I think potentially way ahead of his time and we might do better rather than write. I think all the writing's important. Don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. I think theology is important. I think the academy is important. I think it all is helpful, but it's got to drive us to a place of once again, sitting around tables, sitting in small groups, getting together with the purpose of trying to understand who God is calling us to be and what does that mean about every other day of our life, celebrating the Lord's Supper together, having this understanding of what he's calling us to and what that looks like. And um, I think our, I, I'm just, I really believe I could have um, um pointless optimism i don't know if that but it, i really think that's what our culture is craving they're looking for for places together where they can live in the tension of a world that seems like it's broken and and but yet with the people who are hopeful that god can really still bring about transformation in people's lives and i think there's longing and and you can't systematize that you can't pin that down it, and, and I think that's why um, uh, I was listening to a talk by Rob Bell once again, and he's like, that's why the Psalms are such a big deal is you've got to have language that doesn't try to bring everything down to its lowest common denominator. But there's mystery and there's unknown and there's tension and there's I don't like this. And our world lacks those gathering places where they can voice those opinions. And to me, the church is that place where we come together and we say the world isn't like we want it to be, but we're going to lean into each other and into God together and believe that in that sacred community, that sacred gathering, that God's spirit can do something that would literally potentially transform the world. So I think you just made a brilliant point about Wesley a minute ago. I didn't want to interrupt you, but I want to, I want to go back to it. When you were talking about Wesley being kind of ahead of his time and as a, the, as a theologian, here's the interesting thing about Wesley. To your point, he's not a theologian in a 20th century sense. Wesley was not someone who lived his life in the academy and tried to change the world by writing a lot. He really, he really was trying to get mobilized people into community and to see the possibility of, of – sanctification of God perfecting people in this life. Hmm. He was not a theologian in a 20th century 
sense of an academic theologian. He was a pastor theologian. He was a discipler. And in that, in that sense, he was as Christian as somebody could be. Yeah. Because it was more about, to your point, it was more about, about how he was living it out. I think we've done a disservice to Wesley by systematizing his thought. And it's impossible. I don't well, even know why so, we try because so he changes. He We said this, we said this maybe I've been thinking about the maybe it was the last podcast we recorded. I, I was worried that I was gonna get a lot of flack for saying that in the Church of the Nazarene we have weak doctrine. Hmm. I think I've been haunted by that line. I don't believe that to be true, but I do believe what I said after it to be true that in the 20th century when we were writing our doctrine, we felt pressure from fundamentalists to write to write doctrine in a fundamentalist way. And I do not think, and I, I the more that I read history, the more that I pastor, the more I, be, I am convinced of this one thing. We are not in a book going to solve the world's problems. Like we are, we are not in our doctrine going to change the world. And in that sense, you know, give me the 1940 version of sanctification. Give me the 2016 version of sanctification. It it doesn't, it didn't change, those those little changes in statement didn't change the world then and they're not changing the world now. I hate to say it. Just give me the Jesus version yes, of sanctification. Yeah, and, but, and, <laughs> love but, God and love others. And Let's, the thing is, this is coming from two guys that are not anti-intellectual. Absolutely. I mean, between us, we have several master's degrees. Like, we're not... I think that it's important to understand the historical developments of theology and to know the Bible. I, I don't think I can know Jesus without the Bible. And and there might even be people that are more radical than me that would disagree with me there. But I, I do lift up the primacy of the Bible. I think it's Absolutely. so important. Right. You do too. I mean, it's you preach on it every Sunday because it's worth preaching on. Absolutely. I mean, but Jesus we have to look at these judgment passages where Jesus doesn't, there is no written quiz of doctrine or biblical memorization. Mm -hmm. It's how did your theology translate into your life? Yeah. And the fact that Karl Barth has a mistress and writes the biggest, the most dense theology of the 20th century that we're still reading is troubling. Like we should not be okay with that. The fact that John Howard Yoder you know, has this idea that in the coming kingdom, you know, there's going to be sexual freedom and that we shouldn't have to just be confined to our spouses. That should be troubling to us. You know, that, a, you know, a powerful man would want to, you know, John Wesley a was a terrible husband, got like <laughs> left his wife and was like, all right, I'm out of here and didn't even know she died. And, you know, like had trouble in a church in Georgia because he liked this gal and she married somebody else and then he wouldn't serve on communion and then he got the heck out of Dodge and went back to England. I mean, all of these people had troubling aspects, but so did Moses. And so, you know, so did all these people. So it's, they're there. But I think they once again were seeking how do we live and how do we form people to be who Jesus is calling them to be? It's fascinating. Yeah. No, that that's... Yeah, there. I mean, there are there are troubling elements in all of the theologians for sure. I would I would just say that that it, particularly in the twentieth century, I mean, some of the people that wrote the most dense theology, they're also in some ways complicit in the Holocaust. I mean, it's just it's it's the, the, the my point is my point is if you go back and you look at people who did not live out their faith, but they kind of made a living just writing theology. Oftentimes we have issues like we, we wouldn't say that's who I want to be, but yet we base our we base our thinking around their thought because somebody and some academy somewhere deemed them the person that was the smartest one. And so they're the person that theology kind of centers around now. Yeah. Right. And 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 it's it's problematic. I mean, what if what if we we're always asking ourselves the question, what's, what's leading us toward righteousness? Yeah. What's leading us toward covenant with a God who is not abandoning us? Mm. You know, I think, I think that, um, I think that there has, we are a part of, so to your point, Jeremy, we are in a moment in history 
that is irreversible, that is, the world is changing. The world has changed. In the last 20 years, the world has fundamentally changed. We are networked by the internet in a way that we never have been before, and we don't know how to live into it because we've never seen anybody do it before. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the, the question has to become for Christians, what, what are we not, what are we not going to change? And what are we going to allow ourselves to let go of, you know, in a world that is becoming incredibly disposing, dis that is disposing everything, where everything is disposable now, where everything comes in a box that we throw away, you know, what about Christianity is worth preserving? What about our theology is worth preserving? Those are the things, those are the, these are the questions that I'm asking in my life right now because I, I want to live a meaningful life, Jeremy. <laughs> There's a, um, you don't hear this very often, but there's a Japanese theologian, Kosuke Koyama, mm. and he wrote a book called Three Mile an Hour God. And um, it's interesting. Huh. And his whole point was that that's about how fast a normal person walks. Yeah. And that God is a God who just journeys with people. And that we might do better to understand that in our fast paced society, sometimes we just grab for stuff that, well, I believe this, I believe this, but maybe who God really is, is a God who just walks with people. And the way we emulate him is the best thing we can do is just be with people, journey with people, walk with people. And that the point is how are we influencing, rubbing shoulders with, living life with um, in the day to day and you got to slow down to see people and listen to people and be with people and it takes time and it can get messy because people are messy and and it can be hard and it can hurt because people will will turn their back on you or do something that, that you don't like and yet I think we see in Jesus he's walked with the disciples and they were knuckleheads and didn't, you know, didn't listen. And, and yet he was still patient with them. And, and, and maybe that's, maybe that's the best theology. Three mile per hour God. Yeah. Three mile per hour God. I mean, and that's, that's, that's a theologian I think as, as Christian pastors in the 21st century, that's a million mile an hour society. That's probably the, the theologians that we all ought to aspire to be. Those that walk with people um, that are willing to patiently, disciple and learn in the way of Jesus. The Evangelicals podcast is recorded at Lima Community Church of the Nazarene in Lima, Ohio. 